0: This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. All right,
1: welcome to a summer edition, everyone, of Holding Court. Patrick McEnroe here. Those of you that follow uh, my podcast, thank you for doing so. And of course, uh, we'll have some tennis news coming up shortly as well, as Wimbledon just uh, uh, was tremendous. So we're going to talk about that, talk about what's coming up at the U.S. Open as well, and For those of you that do follow me, you know I've been dabbling in the political world a little bit over the last year, year and a half or so with CNN and Newsmax and others. And uh, one of the things I love about it is some of the people that I've gotten to meet and gotten to know a little bit who are true professionals in that world. And uh, my guest is one of those, Doug High, who was a communications director of the RNC uh, back in 2010, and he's worked in politics Pretty much his whole adult life, graduated from UNC in Chapel Hill. And most importantly, he's an avid tennis player and fan. <laughs> Doug, thanks for coming on Holding Court.
0: It's good to be with you. And, you know, it's I would say when I play tennis, it's really the, the amateur in in the classical <laughs> sense. Because I'm terrible at it, but I really, I play it because I love it.
1: Well, I, I can see that because, uh, you know, I try to pick your brain because it's a big it's a big one about political stuff. And as I said, I love doing the CNN and being on the panels and you're a regular on all sorts of networks. Um, but I often get the text from you. They're never about politics. They're never about what's going on, <laughs> which is what, you know, that's my intro. I want to get into that more. But it's always about tennis and you like to play. Um, tell my our tennis crowd, because that's, you know, for the most part who listens to mm-hmm. this, what they should expect when they see you on the tennis court. What type of player are you?
0: Um, I think I have a pretty good forehand, and that's okay. probably where I should where <laughs> I should end things. Um, you know, as, as I mentioned when I first met you, um, I'm a three zero on a really good day. I okay. might be a three five. Um, but also, what I've what I keep learning with this and with other things that, that you do is it so comes down to reps. You just mm-hmm. got to keep hitting. You got to keep strumming. Whatever it is you do. um, um, to get better. And so I haven't played as much as I'd like, but, uh, I'm playing about once a week and I had for a while, I was doing a fellowship, um, up at the Harvard Kennedy school and the schedule there is pretty free. And so every day at noon was, uh, every Wednesday at noon was untouchable, uh, for me. And that's when I went to their courts with their coach. Yeah. And so often when you do tennis lessons, it's more of an aerobic class than, than they are lessons. Mm -hmm. This, the coach was teaching me. And I could see my improvement week after week. And that was just fantastic.
1: And by the way, uh, as I was doing some background on you and your amazing history in the political world, I didn't <clears throat> come across that your stint up at Harvard. And interesting that they the, that the Democratic National Committee said that you were a pro's pro. That's what I came across <laughs> in that bio. I said, well, if you can be getting compliments from the other side when you're a Republican, uh, that obviously tells uh, us what how well you do your job. But I have to say that in getting into teaching tennis as I have, mm-hmm. just relatively recently, really in the last six years or so, of course, I ran player development for the USDA, mm-hmm. but that was dealing with high level players. So, and then my job wasn't really on court, but actually working with people that I would say like you, that are three O's, three fives, four O guys that love to imp- it, learn something, actually want to get mm-hmm. better. I admire that because for me, it's hard to pick up something new. Like when I see people playing tennis, I'm like, God, they're terrible. Like, why are they even trying to play? (laughs) But actually starting to work with adults and with kids, to me, that's like the greatest thing. Like that I've enjoyed being at our tennis academy, our McEnroe Tennis Academy in New York, is actually working with people that just want to get better. It doesn't matter what their level is.
0: Yeah, and you know, one of the things I learned is, and this is a basic that you've known your whole life that I learned just a few years ago is when you're at the net and you're trying to reach for a shot, you, you naturally would step with your right foot if you're right handed, right? But you actually pivot better if you step with your left. And mm-hmm. once that was taught to me, every time I do that, I still think about that lesson and am excited. And usually, uh, do okay when when I make that move.
1: Was it Coach Fish, by the way, that gave you the yes. lesson? It was. Uh, he's yes. a legend up there at Harvard. Yeah, re- reti- recently retired as a head coach. But I had lots of friends of mine that I grew up playing junior tennis with that that went to Harvard and played there, and they have a great facility. And by the way, Doug, just so you know, the Ivy League, the Ivies in tennis are getting a lot stronger. Yeah. Um. And it, it's it's kind of. It, to me, interesting too, and I'd be interested just to hear your take as we kind of dive in a little bit the political world, but mm-hmm. with the co- the collegiate athletic situation, you know, with the NILs, the name, image, yeah. likeness, so kids can start getting paid. Do you have, like, a feel for that? I mean, because that, that obviously, to me, is going to turn into a, a much bigger political issue. And, and I've even had some lawyers say to me, I interviewed someone on this topic a couple of months Mm -hmm. ago, say that he's convinced that at some point in time, the Ivies are going to be forced legally Mm -hmm. to give athletic scholarships.
0: Uh, I think that that could be true. So I'm on the board of visitors uh, for UNC, and I'm on my, this will be my third year. And when I joined, one of the first things that they did for for everybody on the board uh, was they had the athletic director, Bubba Cunningham, do a call with us. This is when everybody was still locked in and Zooming all the time. Right. And one of the things that he talked about was what the NIL rules were and what that meant. And I recently sent uh, someone an email uh, just last week or the week before saying, can we do that again? Because <laughs> right. my guess is yeah. in two years, it has changed so dramatically mm-hmm. um, that what we talked about then wouldn't apply now. And you know, it, was, it wasn't that long ago that the ACC, the Atl- Atlantic Coast Conference, uh, moved its its headquarters from Greensboro, where it'd been forever, to Charlotte. And the local news, I grew up in Winston-Salem, so we could talk about the Flow Motors tournament back oh, in the day. Oh, now you're really um, pulling it out. Yeah. Don Flo. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, when they moved from Greensboro to Charlotte, there was, there was a lot of reporting about how it was the end of an era. And that was true. But I also thought, yeah, but if we're honest, is the ACC going to exist in five years? And right. that's become more of a question just over the past week or two when we're talking about you know California or Stanford joining the Atlantic Coast no, but, Conference. By the way, look, seems at, crazy. Look,
1: at, look at my shirt. You see that?
0: <laughs>
1: For those of you not watching, but just listening, I have the fear, the tree. Uh, which is a Stanford shirt because, of course, mm-hmm. the mascot or one of them is the Stanford tree. Very intimidating mascot, right? The you know this beautiful sequoia tree. Um,
0: but prettiest prettiest campus in the country, prettiest I'd campus,
1: argue. and uh, <clears throat> Stanford will be. I, I was going to put out a picture. I think I might do it later, Doug, uh, with this T-shirt. Fear the tree. We're going to dominate the pack Four because <laughs> we're you know we're <laughs> down to four. That's but it. you're right. Maybe Stanford joins the ACC. But it, it, you know, college sports is is so. Uh, it it's just upside down. I mean, I'm happy that athletes are starting to get paid because the the money making Goliath that it is, particularly in football, as and as you know, and from North Carolina in basketball, is just it's massive. I mean, it's 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 probably this not probably. I think it's definitely the second biggest sport at ESPN college college yeah. football. You know, after the mm-hmm. NFL. So to me they've got to come up with some way, but now it just feels like it's the wild West out there right now with what's going on with the transfer portal and kids just moving from school to school.
0: The the transfer portal, interestingly has, and I would say depressingly, has essentially turned every college athlete into a free agent every year. Yeah. Right. Uh, there's, there's no four year contract, much less a two year contract anymore. And I think that's one of the things that challenges the system. I'm friends with Kenny Blakeney, um, who's the basketball coach at Howard. He used to play at Duke when I was at Carolina, and I knew him a little bit then. And he told me anecdotally just a couple weeks ago that it has totally changed how he does you know, his job as coach, and he wasn't talking about on the court. He was talking about his schedule, how he's busier in August than he might otherwise be, and how he recruits players is a different way and i know that's true of, of hubert davis at unc right. and i think it's probably one of the reasons that led to coach k went leaving when he did mm-hmm. roy williams leaving when he did and here's how it further has been politicized and there will be legislation on this uh, just this week uh governor roy cooper of north carolina um wrote to the ncaa asking if if a player could get another year of eligibility i think we're going to see more and more things like that
1: yeah, no, it's it's fascinating, and it's something that, as you say, is going to be changing really quickly. All right, let's get into a little politics now, um, because as we're talking, the fourth indictment of former President Trump has come down. Uh, I was listening to a couple of your previous uh, interviews, and you do them all the time on on CNN, MSNBC. The one I watched particularly that interests me was one you did on CBS which was mm-hmm. shortly after the in the January sixth day happened, and you were saying, Well, we gotta see, you know, how this transpires and you know, this can't stand. You were in DC at the time and said you were actually mm-hmm. worried about leaving your where you live to get out of Dodge because of the violence taking place. So now that you know a couple more of these indictments have come down, you know, a, a decent amount of time has passed, what's sort of your overall take on where that process is as we speak here in middle of the summer, 2023?
0: Well, we have two processes, if not more. One's a political one, one's a legal one. Uh, Legally, Donald Trump is in a lot of legal trouble, as are a lot of other people around him. You know, 18 other people were indicted in Georgia. And obviously we have uh, indictments in multiple jurisdictions, which is going to play out in a way that no one can really predict because we've never been here before. Um, politically, I think we see a few tracks happening. One is, I, I would say, there's, there's an immediate effect, a short-term effect, and a long-term effect. The immediate effect is a real rallying um, right. within the Republican base. Not necessarily the party, but the base around Trump. Um, and we certainly see that in fundraising numbers, uh, where he can, or any candidate really, can send an email out to their supporters. And that could be a list of 10,000 people, 2 million people. And raise small dollar donations very quickly—five dollars, fifteen dollars, or, or more—in um, the short term. Then we see, and it'll be interesting to see how the Republican debate plays out next week. Is that it does again sort of fortify Trump's position within the party, and for two reasons. One is if you go back, and you know, with the with the context of I didn't support Donald Trump in 2016, I wrote in uh, Paul Ryan. Um, and didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2020, wrote in Mitch, uh, Mitt Romney. Um, so I was never a Trump supporter. Um, but Trump's core message when he got in the race was essentially the system is rigged. And it's rigged against you, it's rigged right. against me, you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. And so every indictment, bizarrely, reinforces that messaging right. to Trump's core base. And they become not evidence of wrongdoing, but evidence that he was right. Um, And that's a very hard thing um, to shake. And and I understand that. Um, And it's it's in part because of Trump's core strength as a a communicator. Um, The other is that message also essentially gets reinforced by and large by the Republicans who are running against him. And I'd say that most of them are running against Trump in theory, not really in practice, which also then makes Mm -hmm. the debate coming up interesting. So if typically in politics, and this is not a, bombshell or, or deep insight here. But if your opponent is indicted, that's a bad thing and you use that against them. Right. Um, but most of the Republicans shore up Trump's messaging and say things like a two-tiered system of justice or that there were real questions about voter fraud when there there wasn't really any voter fraud and and so forth. And that's that short-term effect. And again, that's where the, the debate will be really interesting. The long-term effect is that this makes it a lot harder for Trump in a general election, though he certainly still could win. And it's because of two things. One, those voters who voted for Donald Trump in 2016, but then didn't in 2020, because they were tired of the chaos. And they right. had real questions about his stability, his uh, ability to do a competent job, you know, things like that. And the other is, you know, I mentioned the word jurisdictions earlier, Georgia Republicans have learned more than anybody, sort of the damaging Uh, prospects of Donald Trump's rhetoric about stolen elections. Mm. We know that we're going to hear a lot of that over the next year. It's cost Republicans Senate races in Georgia three times right now and a presidential race uh, and very well could do the same. And that also plays a role in Arizona, uh, which was very close, North Carolina, which could be the state most likely to flip um, from Republican to Democrat. So those, those become very real problems for Trump if he then is to be the nominee and remain on the ballot through 2024.
1: you know it's fascinating to me a couple of I mean all of what you said is is so insightful but what's fascinating to me Doug about this whole thing and you know I'm I, I, I watch the news all the time and'm I'm, I'm following what you know all the legal experts are saying you know night in night out but what 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 really interests me and you you sort of touched on a little bit which was number one you said, that Trump has been able to convince a bunch of people that the system is rigged. Okay, mm-hmm. whatever that means. But I'm actually interested in in how that happened, because what, mm-hmm. what, you know I'm again I'm not a I'm not a political expert. You know I'm interested in it. I'm not I'm not in it the way you are for my my career my life. But as an as someone who's interested in it and is sort of watching it, this is how this is a view that I have, and I'm just interested to hear your take on it. I see, I sort of have assumed as a citizen over the years that there's a, a bit of corruption that's going on that sort of comes with the territory. You know, mm-hmm. actually, you know you, you, you're, in a, you're a senator on both sides of the aisle. We can name different senators that have been there forever that are mm-hmm. making a fortune somehow, whether it's their spouse or whatever, okay? And they're, you're like, how do they make all that money, you know, making a couple hundred grand a year as a senator? and yep. but as a citizen like to if if you're doing a great job like i guess i'm kind of okay with a little bit of corruption <laughs> you know what i'm saying like that you know mm-hmm. you know the the mayor of new york city you know cutting the, you know what i'm saying and and i guess i just wonder is in in your world of dealing with these professionals that are in it day in day out how much does that really happen and is that where Trump's been able to be so successful? Because I think a lot of people, you you just said also, you said, well, there's no evidence that the election was rigged, right? Mm-hmm. That's what the common theory is. But I mean, there must be 40 to 50% of the population that disagree with that comment.
0: Yeah. And you know, so there's a lot to unpack there. You know, first, by and large, I think that you know, Congress is run by good people wanting to do good things. For their country. They may define those things rather differently. And I'm not talking about people on more of the extremes on either side of the party, but or even centrist per se. There are great liberal Democrats out there. Peter Welch is a senator from Vermont who would describe himself, I think, as pretty liberal, who's a good person trying to do good things. Um, and there are a lot of Republicans who I talk to all the time who find themselves conflicted on a lot of the Trump stuff um, for various reasons, electorally being one of them, right. but ultimately are there to do you know, a good job for for their voters. You know, as as well, um, things have, have There's there's always been a little bit of grease um, in the in, that to make things easier to get things through. Right, and there've all also been pushbacks on that. So we've recently, um, just in in this past Congress, um, have brought back what are called earmarks, which essentially give members of Congress uh, easier ways of targeting specific appropriated money. For pet projects in their in their districts, um, that can be a highway connector. That can be uh, a mass transit hub. It can be a lot. It can be a groundwater recharge. It could be a lot of things um, that allow them to do two things. One, makes it easier for them to vote yes on an appropriations bill or an authorization bill, uh, but also go back home and take very real credit for you know that bill or not that bill, but that particular spending that appropriation.
1: In their district. And, then, and then they can make sort of make a deal with someone else, another congressperson from another part of the country and say, you vote for me, I'll vote for you. I mean, and, and that basically that still happens. Yeah. And, and, and I don't think there's just, anything wrong with that. I mean, that's that's part of, like you said, making the, your district better, doing things better and using the government, which is what the government's supposed to do to yeah. make things better.
0: And well, it had gone away for a while because it was seen as a sign of of the real corruption. Now there had been an explosion in earmarks um, that were done. This is about you know ten years ago or so, um, to where Republicans got rid of the process. Most Republicans didn't want to, and it makes your job harder because if you're a majority leader or a speaker, it makes it harder to wrangle votes because there's less that you can do for some of those members who are part of what we what we often call the vote no hope yes caucus members of Congress who are going to vote no on a bill that they know they they need to pass, but they can go back home and campaign against it. Um, and so that's part of what goes on. You also know that a senator's son or daughter is more likely than not to get a good job in Washington if they want to. Um, that That happens. The question is, is that a qualified person doing real work, or is it a made up job to where somebody's you know, essentially getting paid for work they're not doing, and what comes along, you know, with that. So I think that's where, you know, when it comes to Hunter Biden, mm-hmm. there's a there's been a whole lot of smoke because there's so much that we see from all of this that's really shady. People are buying his paintings for fifty thousand dollars a pop and everything when he's not really an artist. And obviously, then um, what we saw in the Trump years was was an extreme example of that as well. No better example than two things: one hiring your children, which had been verboten in in American politics, essentially. And the other was the Trump Hotel. And I was never critical of Trump for staying at one of his properties, sort of made sense to me. Um, But the way that the Trump Hotel in Washington was used as sort of a one-stop shop for people to demonstrate with checks their loyalty to the Trump administration, or their willingness to do business with the Trump administration, whether that's a you know, a lobbyist for you know a corporation or a county uh, or what have you, or foreign governments, um, to book ten rooms or ten suites, and then when they had that meeting with you know somebody at the Department of State or the White House, oh, we stayed at this glorious hotel on Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Avenue called the Trump Hotel. Um, that, that was a problem, and if we want to drain the swamp. That's probably what to me was the most tangible sign of of the swamp. And that wasn't drained. It was built during the Trump years. Yeah. Well, you know, built metaphorically. Yeah, right.
1: Exactly. I mean, when you when you when you one of the arguments you hear often from the maybe the more extreme Republican side, which I know you're 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 more the the middle of the road Republican guy is um, it's all you know, it's the same thing. It's all the the lawyers now for Trump. Every time a new indictment comes out, it's all political. It's all you know, it's all bogus. Um, ninety-one indictments. I guess you or you know charges have been brought against him, and so I I, I scratch my head and I'm like, well, if these other people are corrupt too, you know, whether it's Hillary Clinton or now the current president, as you mentioned, with his son, yeah. it, are are there going to be indictment? You know, where are the indictments? I mm-hmm. mean, you know, you know, so it's like when when I hear this you know trump just automat i mean and we know it's trump so i take what he says with a grain of salt but there's a ton of people that buy into that idea that concept that it it is rigged and it is political and to yeah. me that then says then the whole then we can't trust anything mm-hmm. i can't trust if you actually believe what trump is saying that the, you know, the, the, who's bringing the charges in Georgia or, uh, or, uh the guy who's bringing the federal charges or Alvin Bragg or anybody, you know, they're all evil and they're mm-hmm. all in on it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, wow, yeah. how did, how do they put like, did, I guess my question is how can people actually believe that?
0: Um, well, they've been told it a thousand times now. So, so that's part of it. Um, and you know, with what, so they've been told it a thousand times, so it's built up to this point. And then the indictment that came first was Alvin Bragg, which I would say was a political indictment, wouldn't have happened if it wasn't Donald Trump. Okay, And even a lot of Democrats that I've talked to here privately would say, you know, at least a, that wasn't the one that should have gone first, because that allowed Donald Trump to sort of set the terms, uh, uh, define what the terms would be. And whether those terms are true or not, uh, because New York went first, uh, where you had a DA who was campaigning on doing this, uh, it makes it very easy for Trump to lop in everything as, or, or group in everything as, as being political. Now, he may have done that with Georgia or the DOJ or what have you. Anyways, uh, but New York going first, I think, really aided and abetted Trump. Alvin, Alvin Bragg ultimately, I think, did Donald Trump a big favor by indicting him in the, in, in the time frame that he did allowing Trump to sort of change that narrative and shape it and that's one of the things that's going to make Monday night is is that the debate Monday uh, I, think, um, I think it's Wednesday I believe Wednesday Wednesday yeah. night Wednesday night um, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that's going to make it so interesting is there's there's a timetable for when you know all of these 19 people who've been indicted have to turn themselves in so it's very easy to see Donald Trump skip the debate and shape the debate by turning himself in two hours before the debate, in the middle <laughs> oh, of the debate. Oh, that would be something um, else, right, yeah. And imagine that split screen, yeah. you know, because I remember watching a Miami Heat game with a white Ford Bronco right. being split yep. split screened in it in 1994. Um, it's very easy to see that happen during the debate. And we know Trump knows that because uh, when, when he leaked his own indictment, um, you know, a few weeks ago, he did so to step on uh, some Ron DeSantis news, and he did so very effectively.
1: By the way, when that Bronco uh, chase happened, I was in the Middle East. Playing, I am mean, not the Middle East. I was in um, the Far East. I was in Japan mm-hmm. playing a tennis tournament. We were following it over there. <laughs> so you were watching the Miami Heat. I was doing that. That was my, my years on the tour. So where do you think um, – I mean, we all try to speculate about – I mean, I think you've said pretty clearly you think this is helping Trump in, in the primary, in the Republican primaries. is going to inevitably hurt him. Um look I as just a uh, as an everyday citizen, I wish Biden wouldn't run again you know mm-hmm. I, I hate to say it he's, 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 he's old. I mean you know mm-hmm. people don't want to hear that and the you know I remember someone um, you know that was was pretty big up at CNN at one point or maybe it was on one of the shows saying, oh you know we're gonna have to deal with this you know meaning that Biden's sort of not totally there right? At times, yeah. like, and you're like, oh, man. And so it's like the term was the term limits, it's an age limits, I guess age, you can't really do that would be discrimination. But um, to me, term limits seems like a no brainer. Um, mm-hmm. For whether senators or presidents or what, I mean, where do well, you? Well, we have term limits.
0: Yeah. We have term limits for president. Well, for presidents, right? yeah, Two. I know, But I guess it should um, be. I guess it should
1: be age limits, and for president.
0: And we 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 have a bottom age limit. So I mean, you could thirty-five. Say that 35 right? Yeah, you know, you could say that that's discriminatory. Right. And I think Democrats true. are in a real bind here. And I sort of liken Biden these days to seeing Frank Sinatra towards the end of his career, which right. I did a few times, and. You know, one night he's crushing, come fly with me. Amazing. And the next right? night he's struggling with the words, Do yeah. my way. And I, I saw that happen. And that sometimes is Biden uh, right now. And that's a problem that's only going to exacerbate because he's at an age where it ages faster right. and in a job where you age faster. And by the way, Trump's not that far behind him either.
1: Right. He's only, that's what I mean. I mean, I just, it's something about seeing a couple of people in their <clears throat> 40s or 50s, you know. Um, battling with new ideas to me would be, would be great for the country. But it, 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 what, what, what bothers me about it is, and and you can speak to this a lot better than I can, is it seems to me that the the way the system is now set up, you know, with both parties being run the way they are with the corporate um, world, you know, having so much influence uh, in DC and a lobbying world that it's almost like I, I mean I shouldn't say this, but it's almost like does it does it matter who's the president because it's like this Uh-oh. you know what I mean I mean I know it matters when it comes to certain things but it it's it, I find it hard to watch that like it's just it feels like they're controlling this and it, they're just putting these people that you can speak differently because you you yeah. lived it as a head of the RNC
0: yeah I How think does that happen? I think it's the opposite okay I think it's mean? the opposite in fact where the parties are not nearly as as powerful as they used to be. Okay. A couple reasons for that. Uh, the McCain-Feingold law uh, puts put limits on what you were able to give political parties. I dealt with that a lot in 2010. Citizens United uh, gave a lot of uh, power to um, outside groups uh, in, in a way with unlimited donations uh, that they didn't have before. And we're in a situation uh, now, Patrick, where you know a lot of the members of Congress that most people know, who I would not necessarily say are the legislative workhorses, um, but that could be a Marjorie Taylor Greene. That could be an AOC. Um, if we know them by their initials, I would say they're probably not legislative workhorses. Right, right. But they they don't get huge corporate checks or, or uh-huh. things like that. They raise, as Donald Trump does, $10 at a time, $15 at a time, maybe $100 um, from somebody here and there. But those small dollar donations are multiplied. These are It's grassroots giving. Mm-hmm. And now we're at a point where I think if, if we had this conversation 15 years ago, you know, we, we would talk about, well, this is democratizing fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's been democratized. And what we see is a rage giving. Donald Trump got indicted again. I'm going to give another twenty five hundred dollars. Um, um, you know, AOC spoke out against this again. I'm going to give her right. another fifteen right. dollars. Marjorie Scheller
1: so, Green went crazy on Twitter again. So we're going to and that's how they get the attention. And, and the money, and so
0: that makes that makes the job of the Chamber of Commerce more difficult in dealing with um, uh, dealing with Congress of corporations, like just to name a few offhand, Bud Light and uh, <laughs> Disney, right? Oh yeah, um, you know, Target. Um, as as what we've seen, you know, everything is being become politicized. Uh, the women's soccer team losing was cheered by some folks who call themselves conservative. I don't think that's terribly conservative, but um, what do I know As a longtime conservative? And um, we also see that um, we used to say that all politics are local. That was Tip O'Neill's famous line. Mm-hmm. But all politics are national now. Mm. You know, so you see Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis fighting each other over on things that are happening in, in their respective states. Right. Something happens in Florida— uh, Democrats will attack Ron DeSantis, regardless of where they are. They don't have to be Florida Democrats. Anything happens like a flash mob that we just saw in L.A. or San Francisco, you know, looting a, a store. Well, Republicans are going to point to that or, or things in Chicago. And so all of these have been nationalized and everything has become politicized.
1: So p- so please tell me, Doug, it's all going to be OK. <laughs> You know, where, well, it's, t- t- it's,
0: where is this going? I mean, this is... It's obviously yeah. much easier to identify problems than it is right. solutions. Um, I'm, I'm still optimistic. And I think we have to get through the next few years and do so successfully for the fever to break. Um, but I've spent, you know, so much time with younger members of Congress who come here with ideas and they want to do things. Um, and certainly in work that I've done at, at UNC or at Harvard or even with students at Georgetown um, these are smart kids who who want to change things, and I may like their change, I may not like that change, but I like their attitude. Right. And and they still they still give me hope.
1: Well, that's good because um, you know it's just from the outside looking in, it feels like a shit show. You know, it's just a kind con- just oh, constant. It is. Yeah, no, I know it is, and and I, and we know that that's sort of politics in some way, but. Um, I, I hope that th- this can be a little more civility that would come back. I know that doesn't make news and it's not, you know, fun to talk about uh, in the primetime shows. It's all about, you know, attitude and so on. But as you said, and you, you, you pointed this out a couple of times in the course of our conversation, and, and, and by the way, I so appreciate you giving me the time and, and coming Anytime. on. Anytime, are you yeah. kidding? Um, is the fact that it's, you know, the workhorse is the people actually getting shit done, are the people that don't get the attention, yeah, you know, and that, and, and I think that should give us all hope that there's still people out there willing to do it for the right reasons.
0: Yeah. You know, I get a lot of calls from Capitol Hill uh, newspaper reporters and you could sort of guess with, with one hand, what members of Congress they might be calling me about. And <laughs> right. I will often say to them, how come you've never called me about Peter Welch from right. Vermont or Gus Bilirakis from Florida? Um, we talk about a handful of members. Uh, they tend to be younger. They tend to be more attractive. They tend to be more TV friendly. Um, and here's how it's also changed. You know, I talked about the fundraising aspect. When I started on Capitol Hill, um, as a press secretary, I worked for a congressman from California who was a rancher, which meant that in his official portrait, he wore a cowboy hat.
1: Um,
0: cause he was a cowboy. He was right. a rancher, um, outside of Stockton, California, outside of Tracy. And, Um, I got him on national television exactly twice, Uh, once on Fox and once on ABC. And both times I could have metaphorically put my feet on my desk and said, I'm done for the year. (laughs) The reality now is if you're working on Capitol Hill as a press secretary, quite often your job is to be a booker. And if you haven't gotten your boss on Fox News or MSNBC, much less CNN, of course, or the other ancillary networks around there, You're not doing your job and there are so many members of congress now who will look at their schedule and say why am i not on fox business tomorrow right and that is a sea change in just 20 25 years
1: interesting interesting doug hi everyone joining me here on holding court north organic cbd is a new sponsor of holding court i love their cbd gummies they come in two delicious flavors strawberry lemonade and green apple i've had them both both amazing. One a day and you're totally okay. I like to stay active. I like to keep playing tennis. I like to get in the gym. That's why I love North Organic CBD. Their products are made in the USA. They're high quality. They're specially formulated broad spectrum organic CBD products for everyday adventurers. Don't forget about the very popular CBD salve from North Organics. Immediate relief of any physical pain. I use it daily for my sore shoulders, sore knees, hips, you name it. It works wonders. Go to NorthOrganicCBD.com and enter Patrick20, that's Patrick20, for 20% off your order. The Johnny Mac Tennis Project transforms young lives by removing the economic, racial, and social barriers to success through tennis. JMTP provides tennis as a vehicle for greater life opportunity. The programming provides a pathway to success through competitive tennis, leading to increased health and fitness, college scholarships, and incredible career opportunities.
0: JMTP introduces tennis to thousands of underserved New York children every week.
1: To date, the Johnny Mac Tennis Project has reached over 10,000 students through its community programs, providing 462 individual scholarships totaling over 8.6 million dollars 32 of its scholarship recipients have gone on to receive college scholarships through tennis. For more info, go to jmtpny.org.
0: I can't wait to hit the court after school.
1: I do want to get back to tennis a little bit because that's, you know, um, where we started. Forehand is your best shot. Yeah, um, you're going to come the next time. I know you've been in New York. I've been out and about through a lot of the summer, but you're going to come back to New York. Hopefully you're going to make it for the open U S open, but I know <laughs> you're very busy, um, but you are going to come and I'm going to give you a lesson. Okay. I, I'm absolutely. Not, I'm not going to charge you the big bucks that it normally costs to get a lesson with me at the Academy. What are we going to work on? What do you, what is, what does Doug high want to improve well, on in his game other than everything?
0: The first thing you're going to say is, "Well, that forehand needs a lot of work." You know, the challenge for me, I would say, the serve is where I need my my most yeah. work. And it's funny when I was when I was at the City Open um, just a few weeks ago here in DC. You know, I got to see a really good good view of Andy Murray serving, mm-hmm. and you know, I don't get vertical on mine. Which, if I were better, I would, and I I'd be hitting faster. But what I find is, it's the mechanics. I'm thinking about things too much. So right. when I hit a backhand, I'm thinking six or eight different steps. Mm -hmm. So I'm overthinking Mm -hmm. it. Right. Right. right? And of course that comes with more reps and more hitting that I need to do, but, but it's, so it's all of that. Um, and of course, you know, court awareness and knowing where I'm supposed to be and Mm -hmm. so forth is, is always, well,
1: well, it's funny you mentioned serve and Andy Murray, um, by the way, he has a solid serve, good serve, not a great serve. Considering how great of a player he's, you know, yeah, he's one of the great movers ever, one of the great competitors. A good server, not a, And it was mm-hmm. actually for him, his second serve was actually pretty like a weak part of his game. Yeah, you know, when you compare him to the other, you know, guys he was competing with, um, but the serve. It's funny you mentioned that about the the elevation on the serve because I have a lot of people. like as I was mentioned to you earlier that I that I work with or I coach. And they're all trying to, like, jump on the serve. And I'm like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. They're like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, you, re- you realize you're, comp- you're overcomplicating it by the yeah. 100th degree. And a lot of kids, unfortunately, I actually went to a um, biomechanical uh, thing on tennis. This was years ago when I was with the USDA, And the French, who are who maybe the best at studying kind of the biomechanics of tennis, or certainly very good at it. Um, figured out that you should never teach a kid under 10 to jump on the serve because it's, it's actually not even possible to, for the coordination of the body. And the most important mm-hmm. thing on the serve is just the shoulder. It's just the arm. Yeah. It's like throwing a ball, you know? Yeah. So like, would
0: you, if you're a pitching in baseball, would you jump? Right. Right. You, the answer well, is no. When you're a kid, yeah. when you're a kid, you want to emulate the pros. Like exactly. uh, when I grew right. up, right. You know, Reggie Jackson was my baseball hero and, I should not want to swing like Reggie Jackson because I was (laughs) seven years old. And
1: you'd get hurt, right? Right. Yeah. By the way, I'll leave you you with this before I let you go. Um, I went to the game in 77. I was 11 when Reggie hit the three homers in the World Series. Wow. My dad got tickets, which was a huge deal for us. We were sitting in the upper deck, in the right field upper deck. And uh, when Reggie hit the third homer, Mm-hmm. We lived in Queens. We grew up in Queens, which is, you know, the other side of the city from the Bronx, Yeah, as you know. And uh, my dad grabbed my hand and he goes, we're out of here. This place is going to be a bedlam. You know, we, like, <laughs> we got to get out of here. So that was why, you know, because I grew up in, in Queens. We, we, that's where we grew up close to what was then Shea Stadium, yeah. where the Mets play. And that's where, of course, the U.S. Open site is right next to it. So a lot of people are like, how come you're a Yankee fan? Well, well now you know why. Because when I was, went to that game when Reggie hit the three dingers.
0: Well, I grew up, you know, in Winston Salem, uh, North Carolina, and Richmond, Virginia. I'm a Yankees and a Steelers fan. That's oh, Reggie wow. Jackson and Terry Bradshaw. Oh, there you go. And, and it's, because, it's also because they were on TV, right? And the Cleveland Browns weren't. You know, the Milwaukee Brewers weren't. And by the way, we had two games a week, right, back yep. then.
1: And by the way, Winston Salem and North Carolina, just in general, great tennis town and city. We, I was there in Winston-Salem when we uh, played Davis Cup a couple of times mm-hmm. when we had Andy Roddick and the Bryan brothers and James Blake on yeah. the team. So we had some great um, moments there. Uh, great, great just tennis town in Charlotte, Raleigh. Well, Raleigh's a, you know obviously got the colleges there. It's pretty good in tennis, but Winston, I would say Winston-Salem, Charlotte, uh, some nice clubs are actually played. I played once in Davis Cup in Charlotte. Um, in doubles, I played a few times in doubles. Then of course I was a captain for 10 years, but good tennis tradition. We're going to get you Doug out on the courts here in New York. (laughs)
0: Um, it's going to be a disaster. Tell
1: me who's going to be, uh, the presidential nominees who will be, Uh, you know, it's
0: funny. I had, I had a conversation with my brother about this yesterday, who's a banker and is thinking in trends and all of this right? and qualitative, you know, this and that. And I said, you, you have to assume in this case, in this case, that it's going to be Trump because um, yeah. of his strength in the primary and that no one's going to challenge Biden. Right. Um, but I'm not given the variables there. Um, it's still very it's very difficult to make those as, as firm predictions. Um, if somebody challenges Biden, it's very easy to see then floodgates get opened. Uh, and mm. given all things Trump. does. Does anybody really challenge Trump? and does Trump finally walk away, right? And and is Trump walking away a a carrot for him on indictments? Let me
1: ask you one thing I, it's, it's, I'm so glad you just said that because I've I've been I've thought about this a bunch of times and I, I, I want to know what you think. If Trump had walked away when he lost the election to Biden, would any of these indictments have
0: happened? No. Absolutely no. r- right. Absolutely he, not. And And to that, think of, um, you know, another congressman that doesn't do anything that we all know, George Santos. And quite often, (laughs) quite often, the question will be, why is he still there? Well, the reality is his incentive is to stay in that job because one, he's getting paid. But two, if he if he resigns, then he has no leverage with law enforcement. So part of his deal, whatever it turns out to be, is going to say, and you'll be resigning, right um, and so that's, it's, right. it's that situation as well.
1: Very, very interesting. Doug. Hi, everyone. Where can uh, all the fans see you coming up? Doug, I know you're all over the airways. Where will we find right now? I have
0: nothing planned, which okay. I'm actually, I'm quite happy with. Yeah, I'm going enjoy- to Montreal for the weekend. Oh, good so. for you.
1: Good. Well, enjoy yourself. Thanks for coming on Holding Court. and um, Anytime. I will look forward to getting you on the courts, and we'll get in, we're will get we going to nudge you just past a 3-5, okay? That's my promise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think you'll demote me to a 2-5 most likely when you see me. <laughs>
1: well, we will see. Doug Hi, here on Holding Court. Don't forget to subscribe to and share Holding Court. Holding Court is powered by Mudhouse Media.